Amen. Have a seat, everybody. Amen, amen. We serve a faithful, faithful God. Amen? Amen. We serve a God who makes promises. We serve a God who keeps promises. Amen? Amen. We serve a God who promised that he would send a Savior, and he did send that Savior. We, send a God, we serve a God who promised that those who repent of sin and trust in that Savior, Jesus as Lord and Savior, would be saved. Amen? Amen? We serve a God who, when we're saved, when we turn from sin and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, forgets our sin as far as the east is from the west. Amen? We serve a God who's righteous and good and just and brings peace and joy to the repentant sinner. We serve a God who adopts us into his family, not only brings us into his family, we serve a God who gives us spiritual gifts to increase his kingdom. Amen? We serve a God who's not forgotten us. A God who's counting the minutes, the hours, the days, and the years when he's going to send his son back to claim his bride, the church. We serve a God who's going to prepare a place for us in heaven. We serve a God who's not forgotten you. We serve a God who reaches into the miry clay, into the depths of the sinner's heart, and brings refreshment and forgiveness. That's our God. That's the God we serve. That's the God who we're here to worship today. What a good God. Amen? What a good, good God we serve. Amen. All right, it's time for our kids to come up for our time of uh, children's sermon. If you're a child with us and you don't know what's going on, come up front. We have a fun time together. Come on up here. Have a seat. All right. All right, I need my youth who are willing to come help me to come up here as well. I help you. Okay. You're definitely going to help me. I was counting on it. All right, you two, that's good. You two are the willing sacrifice, sacrificial lamb, so I appreciate. All right, Karis, you're going to be my special person wearing the blindfold. You may go, oh, over here, darling, over here. No, that stays there, blindfolded person over there. And you can give her their pitcher of water when you've given her her blindfold. Way over in the corner. Way over there. All right, we've got a spot. Can you guys do me a favor? And either you can sit up here on the stairs or back up and make a pathway through here. You can either sit up here or sit over there, you, wherever you want. We just got to have a pathway for, for Karis. All right, we're going to do something really special today, all right? We have a special, special project. The purpose of today's special message for you guys is we have Karis who's blindfolded and cannot see. Somehow, Naomi, can you come over here and stand right here? Right here? Thank you. Somehow, we've got to find a way to get Karis to fulfill her purpose. She's got to take that pitcher of water and she's got to bring it over here and dump it into this pitcher. All right, that's the purpose of today's lesson. But Karis is blindfolded, and she doesn't know where to go. The good news is, this is Naomi. Naomi loves Karis. She's very good friends with Karis. Naomi has the ability to take off Karis' blindfold. All right? Now, let's see. I need, maybe I could get two helpers. All right, let's see. One... Two. You guys follow me. 
I know. Well, we'll get you next time. Okay? Oh. So sorry. We can't have everyone help all the time. All right, here we go. So your, your job is to get Karis to, dump, to fill the purpose and dump the water in that pitcher. But you can't take Karis to that pitcher to dump the water. You can't take her by the hand. You can take her by the hand for a little while, but you can't take her all the way to the pitcher. But Naomi, she can take Karis's blindfold off. Where do you think you should take Karis? Should we ask the church? They need some help, church. Where, where should they take Karis? To Naomi. to Naomi. Well, wait. Maybe I don't need you guys. So let's see. Maybe I was lying. Maybe Karis has more ability than I thought she had. <laughs> don't drop the water. Don't <laughs> drop the water. Okay. Maybe Karis has the ability to get to that pitcher by herself. Go ahead, Karis. Go to the pitcher. Just go slow so you don't hurt yourself. You can go anywhere you want. I'm not going to tell you, though. You've got to find it on your own. Sure you can, yeah. And, and there's a time limit. <laughs> Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, oh, three, two, one, zero. You ran out of time. What do you think? You guys want to help her? Where should you take her? Yeah, why don't you take her there? Why don't you take her to Naomi? You have a lot of trust for them that they're not going to run you into something. Why don't you introduce her? Who is that? Say, say Karis, this is Naomi. Okay. Say, hey, Naomi. Can you help her? Good. Go ahead and do it. Don't pull her hair. That thing's on there tight. Maybe just from the top up here. Yeah. Perfect. All right, now, Karis, can you fulfill your purpose? Yes. Why don't you go do it? Okay, you guys come over here. All right. All right. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the Bible says that people are blinded to the ways of God. They don't know how to get to God. It's your job and my job to take them first to Jesus because they can't get to God on their own. And you can't take them to God on your own. You have to introduce them to someone special. Do you know who that is? Jesus. And then Jesus takes them to God. And then when they get to God, they get to achieve the purpose for which they were created. All right? Today... The word of the day is, let's see, what's a hard one? Purpose. All right? Thank you guys for coming up here. You can be seated. All right, church, I want to invite you to take out a copy of God's word with me this morning and open up to Acts chapter 17. Acts, the book of Acts chapter 17. The question that we're going to answer this morning is how do I live in a culture, how do I live as a missionary in a culture that worships idols? How do I live as a missionary in a culture that worships idols? 
The reality is, in what we're going to learn from the missionary Paul in the city of Athens this morning, as it's depicted in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16, is a city full of idols seeks after an unknown God whom we know and should describe to them. And so I'm going to take that sentence, a city full of idols seeks after an unknown God whom we know and should describe to them. I'm going to take that sentence and we're going to chop it up and I'm going to, I'm going to use that sentence to articulate the meaning of this particular text in Acts chapter 17. So Paul was recently in Berea where he shared the gospel and where some believed and others did not believe. Some instigators and in, in anti-gospel folks came down from another city and made trouble for Paul. And so the believers in Berea sent Paul away. And now Paul, at this point in the text, is in the city of Athens. Look with me at Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So Paul finds himself in the city of Athens. In the 5th and 6th century before Jesus came, this was one of the greatest cities in the world. It had a growing population of people. It was known for brilliant and beautiful architecture. It was known for worshiping a pantheon of gods. By this time in history, however, the city of Athens had uh, dwindled to about 5,000 citizens in Rome, but it was still known for being a philosophical center of the world and, and full of art, and, and it was full of tourists as well. A lot of people went there to see the, the beautiful architecture and the pagan temples, the most important of which was the highest point in the city, the worship of the Greek goddess Athena for whom the city was named. The presence of these idols deeply distressed Paul. In fact, if you look at the original Greek, he was irate about what he witnessed. His soul burned with righteous indignation because of the idol worship that was taking place in Athens. Much like we read about in John chapter 2 when Jesus went to the temple and saw the money changers who had this temple space filled with money and animals and were, were preventing the Gentiles from coming into that space and worshiping God. This is the same type of feeling that Paul has in this moment. His response to this feeling is important. What would Paul do about his righteous indignation? What is his next step? Look at verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshipped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So Paul does two things. He, he witnesses to two different groups of people. First he goes, as he always does, into the synagogue to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Jews and the God-fearers who go there regularly on a weekly basis to worship Yahweh. But he doesn't stop there. Paul is a missionary called by God, not just to the Jews, but also and primarily to the Gentiles. So Paul goes where the Gentiles gather, which is the marketplace. Now in Athens, the marketplace was, was not only a place where people went you know, to buy groceries, it was a place where they exchanged ideas and thoughts. 
People gathered there throughout the day to describe the latest beliefs or, or the latest occurrences in the city. It was a center of thought and reason as well as for shopping. Paul engaged two particular philosophical groups in Athens in the marketplace, Epicureans and Stoics. Look at verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, you should know a little bit about these two philosophies. The, the Epicureans were materialists. They believed that everything came from matter, and thus they did not believe in an afterlife. What you see is what you get. This is pretty much everything there is. And so to have this man stand and talk about an afterlife, about a God, about a place you go after you die, they, they would have been the ones saying, look at this ignorant fool, this Paul. What does he know? He's so simple. The Stoics, however, were pantheists. They believed that there was divinity in everything, in animate and inanimate objects. Everything was saturated with deity in all of creation. And so Paul, man, he, he knew how to pick a fight, right? Paul didn't just engage one group. He, he just got everybody together and proclaimed the gospel. Some thought he was a fool, thought he was ignorant, especially when he described his ideas about the resurrection. The other group called him a preacher of foreign divinities. They, they had not heard about, about this Jesus. They had, they had not heard or worshipped Yahweh, the God of the Jews. And who is this Anastasia? This God of the resurrection. And so they're confused about what Paul was saying. You know, John Calvin, the great theologian and pastor, said something interesting. He said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. The human heart is a perpetual idol factory. Do you think that's true? You know, in recorded history, even non-Christian historians say that every group of people, every civilization worshipped something. I wonder why that is. Well, the answer is because our Creator God made us to worship. That's our purpose. Our purpose for living is to worship God. Now, the people in the world who do not know God make up a God to worship because that's what we're created to do. And that's why they do it. Unfortunately, we've lost our purpose as humanity, haven't we? We live in a city full of idols. We may not have statues of gods and goddesses or temples where people go to make sacrifices, but the people of our city worship false gods and worship in man-made temples. Let me give you an example. Let me preface it with this. I love my city. I love Key West. I love the islands up to our north and our east. I love being here. I love being on mission for Jesus. 
but my heart is broken for my city. Because we live in a city that worships idols. The one, in my opinion, primary idol that we worship in this city is hedonism. Hedonism is a life dedicated to pleasure. It's seeking above all things the things that make you feel good. That can be just as much of a false god as Zeus or Baal when our people make pleasure the focus of their lives and remove God and that place of worship and put in that place seeking after pleasure. Our pagan temples may not resemble those in Athens, but we still have them here. Places like baseball fields, boats, the workplace, gyms. Those aren't necessarily bad places. And we can use those for the glory of God. I have a boat. I love to take that boat out. But when those things take the place of God as the primary worship and focus of our lives, guess what they've become? An idol. The question I have for you, the question that plagued my heart this week as I prepared the message for today, is do our city's idols bother you? When I think of the hedonism that the culture of our city is committed to, what am I going to do about that? Does it bother me enough to care? Does the worship of idols in the place of God by your friends and family and neighbors bother you? If we really believe what the Bible says about Jesus and our need for Him to provide for us forgiveness of sins, reconciliation with God, and a restored purpose, then we should be bothered, right? Why? Because God has something better for them. Oh, church, oh, we've tasted, and it's good, right? We've tasted the sweetness of God's forgiveness. We've enjoyed the purpose that He created us to achieve. And it's good. You know, it's interesting. In Jacksonville, I've told you before, we work with a lot of immigrants there. And um, that was one of the great joys of being in Jacksonville was working with folks who were in a lot of trouble in another country many of whom were in trouble because of their faith in Jesus, who were able to come to our country and worship when be free to worship Jesus without being worried about being executed or jailed or other things. And so they would come, and part of our ministry was we would help them get settled and, and then help them plant churches in their, in their native languages and see God glorified. It was interesting, Darlene and the girls would often help the ladies who came over they would come into their, their apartment and they would get settled. One particular group of people um, had pretty much lived their, their whole lives cooking food over a fire. And maybe it would have a rudimentary homemade stove that was fire, um, you know, that they used fire for their heat. And they would come and Darlene would help them get settled and, and would go maybe meet up with them after a month or two. And uh, we, she, she went one day to, to teach them how to cook some American food which, you know, is generally out of a box, right? <laughs> Funny joke. So, 
Um, she went there and, and met them and said, okay, we're going to use, you know, your stove and your microwave. And they didn't really know what that was. So she opened the stove to find that that's where they stored their, their pots and plates, the stove. And then uh, I think f- some food and things were stored in the microwave. They weren't using the stove or the microwave to cook their food. They were using them to store their plates and their silverware and things like that. And imagine their surprise when Darlene showed them how easy it was to cook food in America with a stove. And then on top of that, the microwave that makes food in like three minutes. Man, they loved it. They were so excited and learned how to make their own food using those appliances. And we were excited because it really saved them some time and, and really helped them see what you know, was available to them. If we know that the people of our city are caught up and lost the way Karis was lost and blindfolded over here, if we we know that's true, and we know that in their desperate search for purpose, they're not going to make it to God. They're going to find something else to worship. An idol. They're going to make an idol. Until you take them to Jesus, they're never going to achieve and experience the purpose for which God created them. If we do nothing, who's going to share the gospel light with those lost people who are worshiping idols? How are they going to meet Jesus who's going to remove that blindfold and help them to see the truth of God's purpose for their lives? You see, we live in a city full of idols who seeks after an unknown God whom you know. That's what Paul's going to talk about next. Look at verse 19. They took him, this is Paul, remember Paul's in the marketplace, Paul sharing the gospel, they're interested. So verse 19, they took Paul and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you are presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us, And we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling and hearing something new. So it says there that they take them to this place called the Areopagus. Now really that has two meanings. Areopagus, also known as Mars Hill, was an elevated hill in Athens where people would gather and hear teaching. And then the Areopagus is also a council of people who, who made decisions for the city. So what I think happened here is they're taking Paul to this place called Mars Hill. They put him in front of all the most important people in the city. He's not been arrested and put on trial. They're interested in what he has to say. So they bring him to the place where you go to make speeches about what you believe. And so Paul is given front and center the opportunity to preach the gospel. So what Paul says in verses 22 to 31 is his presentation to them about what they're doing and about who God is and about how they can change all that. He does this in five, sort of five presentations. First thing he's going to tell them is that they worship false gods, but the unknown God can be known. Look with me at verse 22. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, 
I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to the unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So first Paul pays them sort of a slighted compliment. I see that you're very religious. I see that you think worshiping things is very important. And they probably thought, that's right, we do. We are a great worshiping people. So Paul kind of set him up, right? He says, I, I see that you have many, many different idols that you worship, many altars in this city. I want to draw your attention, he says, to this altar, to the unknown God. They've erected an altar, actually, to the unknown God. Among the pantheon of gods that they're worshiping, they put an altar up to the unknown one just in case they forgot somebody. So you go through along the the streets and the walkways of Athens, worshiping these gods, and then you get to the unknown one. All right, this is the catch-all. Just in case we forgot anybody... This is the one we make an offering to for the unknown God, the one we don't know. Paul's brilliant. He says, I want to talk to you about this unknown God. Next, what Paul's going to tell them is Yahweh, that's God the Father, is the one true God. That's what he's going to say next. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it He is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gave everyone, gives everyone life and breath and all things. So the Athenians believed that divinity was found in everything, in the heavens, in nature, and in humanity, that it was saturated. Many of them were pantheists, so they believed that God was everywhere. But Paul explains to them that the unknown God, the one they labeled the unknown God, the one they don't know, that's Yahweh. That that God created everything. Look at the text, that he is Lord of creation. That means he's the boss. That, mean, that means he is above everything and everyone, including their God's. That he doesn't live in them and that he is above everything in power and authority. Things are getting real now. Next, Paul says, Yahweh created us to know and worship him. The same God who created everything, the one who's above all this other stuff that you're doing, he created us for a purpose and that purpose is to worship him, to know him. Look at verse 26. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each of us. So Paul declares that God created all people, that this God Yahweh, whom they may have recognized by now as the God of the Jews, that he created everyone and everything, that he's Lord over everyone and everything, that he is so sovereign that he even appointed the time and the place where every single person is born. That that God created all people for one purpose, to worship him. Now, the Athenians already heard from Paul, I see that you're a religious people. 
So they knew what the activity of worship was. So Paul was sort of meeting them in a common ground. They would say, yes, we, we should be worshiping. Only Paul's telling them there's really just one God, not many. And he's sovereign over all things, even you. And you were created by this God to worship him. Next, Paul says, Yahweh created us and is not found in your man-made idols. Look at verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since then we are God's offspring. We shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. So Paul uses one of their venerated poets, a man named Eratus, who wrote this line, for we are his offspring, to describe the fact that God created all of us and that we were born through an ancient lineage beginning with a man named Adam. Now what's funny, Eratus wrote that line to say that all people are connected to Zeus. Paul says, that, that ain't right. That's not right. God, Yahweh, created all things, and you were born in a line that began with God's creation, a man named Adam. And that God, Yahweh, he doesn't live in stone or gold or silver. What they believed when they make these idols, they would fashion these ornate idols, and there was a a, a, a very, very um, productive or um, fruitful business in making idols and selling them to people. So many of the people Paul's speaking with made these idols and made money from this. You know, we, we know tourism, right? You know, we got lots of shops downtown on Duval, right? Right, the $5 shop, whatever, all that stuff. A lot of the people listening to Paul would have been like the owner of the $5 shop, only they're not selling t-shirts, they're selling idols, now, if you purchased and owned an idol, you would pray to that idol, and they believe that, that through your prayer to the idol, somehow that God, whom that idol represented, was bound to that idol, and then through your sacrifices and prayers, that God would be required to do what you're asking. That's how that relationship worked. And then Paul, he's going to come in with like the theological sledgehammer, and he's bashing these idols with every single sentence of his testimony. This God created everything, and he doesn't live in those idols of stone and silver and gold. Those things are worthless. How do you think the guy felt that just paid like 500 bucks down on the, the Athens Duval for his idol? Wait, this thing doesn't do anything? How do you think the shop owner is going to feel? Paul just with one sentence just said, like, everything you sell is worthless. This is what Paul was, this is the, the, the um, consequence of the truth that Paul is sharing here. So our God Yahweh doesn't live in those idols. He's above all that stuff. He's not in that. And so they're worthless. They're made of gold and silver and stone and wood. That's all they are. So Paul very clearly tells them that all the altars in their city, the idols that they 
place up in, in their homes, those are dedicated to gods who don't exist. Powerless gods. There's only one God, Yahweh. That's what Paul is saying here. Now finally, he's going to compel them to make a decision and to do something about what he just said. He's going to compel them to turn from their sin, to turn from their worship of idols, to turn to the one God of the universe, Yahweh, through his son, Jesus. Look at verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Let's just stop for a minute. I want you guys to see and understand what Paul is doing. He's standing in Athens, one of the most important philosophical, theological thought cities in the Roman Empire. In the most important part of the city, where people came and made eloquent speeches, in front of the most important people in the city, and he just told them that everything on which they've laid their lives is a lie. It's all untrue. That's what Paul just did. That guy was fearless, right? Then, he tells them, y'all need to repent of what you've been doing. Everything your mommy and your daddy taught you about God is a lie. It's untrue. You need to turn from that. Look at verse 31. Because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man who he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So first Paul shares the bad news. Everything you're doing in your religious system is false. It's powerless and it will do nothing for you spiritually. In fact, you're actually offending the God of the universe by what you're doing and you need to stop. You need to repent, which means turn away from that and turn towards something else. On top of that, God has set aside or appointed a time when judgment's going to come and you will be judged for the way that you lived your lives. Now the good news, it is called the gospel, right? What's the gospel mean? Good news. God is the one true God and should be acknowledged by his creatures. So you should turn from worshiping that and you should worship the one true God. All people will ultimately stand before God and give an account for their relationship with him. God appointed a man named Jesus. He's going to return and judge people for their sin. But he's also given you an opportunity to turn from sin and be saved. God demonstrated Jesus' power over sin, his identity as the Savior, by raising him from the dead. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. We live in a city full of idols who seeks after an unknown God whom we know. And we should describe that God to our city. One of, my, one of the funny things that I point out when I go downtown is I, I think I've been here four years now and I can spot a lost tourist. 
Anybody in here, can, can you guys do that? If you're a tourist here, we love, we love you being in our city. And I'm going to tell you that I've been a tourist in your city too, and I get lost. So we're all in the same boat. But I can spot a lost tourist. you know how I can spot a lost tourist? Generally, they have a cell phone out, and they're walking like this. And then once in a while, they'll get to an intersection, put their phone down, and look around. What does that tell us? I don't know where I'm at. We were in New York a couple years ago. I did the same thing. I'm walking with my phone because I've got the maps walking map on, right? You guys know what I'm talking about? They're on Apple Maps, you can say, I'm not, I'm not driving, I'm walking. And you literally get it out and you're like this. I had someone step in front of the truck the other day, just like this, right through the street. I'm like, they're using a uh, walking map. Cool. So I was in New York and we were lost and I lost signal and I'm, I'm doing this deal. And then I'm looking and then, and then we're back here or over here. Thank the Lord, uh, a, a, a local, a New Yorker came up to us and was like, are you guys lost? What does my pride want to say? No, 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 we're not lost. I know exactly where I'm at. And, but, but I had my family with me, so I'm like, yeah, we're definitely lost. And they're like, where are you trying to go? We're going to a museum. They told me where to go. And then hopefully when you're downtown and you see the lost tourists, what do you do? Anybody help? Anybody going to help? Nobody. Y'all are. Jeffrey, Linnea, okay, you guys, everybody else. Wow. Harsh. No, if you found someone was lost, you knew they needed to get somewhere, I'm sure that you would stop and help. Well, the Bible is real clear that, that we live in a city full of people who are blind to the truths of God. They don't know God's purpose, and, and they're literally walking around through life looking for peace and purpose. And a joy that seems to be like a, like a fog that they can't grab a hold of. And you know the answer to their problem. You know how to find God and joy and peace and purpose. Will we tell them? Look at verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. But others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined and believed, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So Paul preaches the message. I'm really not sure how he wasn't arrested, stoned, drug out of town, or whatever. God gave him grace there. The message of the gospel compels people to make a decision. The message of all people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us make mistakes. Because of our sin, we're separated from God. God is just... And righteous. And, and so, because we've sinned against him, judgment in hell for eternity awaits all people. But God, because of his love, sent his son Jesus, who lived a perfect life, who allowed them to nail him to a cross where his blood was shed as an atonement or a covering for our sin. 
He died on that cross. He was buried in the ground. And on the third day, God raised him back to life. If we would turn from our sin and trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we'll be forgiven, adopted into God's family, reconciled with him, and we go to be with him in heaven forever. Would you like to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior? When you hear that question, you're compelled to answer. The gospel compels people to answer a question. Some people reject him. Some people receive him. Others ask for more time. That's exactly what happened in Athens. Why does that happen? Well, listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross, that's the gospel about Jesus, is foolishness to those who are perishing. So to those who reject Jesus, they, they reject him because they consider that message to be foolish, like some of those in Athens. But it is the power of God to us who are being saved. But for those who turn from sin and trust in Jesus, it has the power to bring salvation. And so when you go and you present the gospel to your friends and neighbors and co-workers, some of them are going to reject it. It'll sound like foolishness to them. Others might need more time. They might say, I'm, I'm intrigued, I'm interested in what you're saying. And you might need to have another coffee. You might need to have him over for another dinner or take him on another fishing trip and talk to him a little bit more about Jesus. And then there's the others. The blindfold is removed. They recognize through the ministry of the Holy Spirit the truth of the gospel. They are compelled to turn from their sin and to trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Our calling from God, our mission from Jesus, is to go out into our city full of people who are worshiping idols, who are searching after an unknown God, and to tell them about Jesus and to leave the results up to God. Now, I don't know what your life is like today, I don't know the circumstances that you came in when you walk, came from when you walked through those doors. Do you feel like you're searching in the dark for purpose today? Are you looking for a joy that you can't seem to find in the other aspects of your life? In a minute, everyone's going to stand up, and we're going to have a time of invitation, a time for people to make decisions. And if there has not yet been a time in your life where you turned from your sin, where you repented and placed your faith in Jesus, I want to lead you to him this morning. So when we start singing, I want you to come forward so I can pray with you. For those of you that are already believers, I want to compel you today and during this time to pray for our city. We have a city full of people who are lost. And the things that they're searching for that they hope will bring purpose and joy and peace, none of that will do those things. They need a relationship with Christ. 
And so during this time of invitation, I want to invite you to come and pray at the altar, pray at your seats, but pray for our city. Pray by name for your neighbors and your family and your friends. Also, if you need prayer this morning for, for anything else, the altar will be open and I'll be here and I'll be happy to pray with you. Would you all stand with me now as we have this time of invitation? Heavenly Father, I pray over this time, I thank you, God, for the opportunity to worship you. I thank you, God, that the blindfold of spiritual blindness has been removed from our eyes and we've experienced the salvation that only Jesus provides. Now I ask God, through the ministry of your indwelling Holy Spirit, that you convict us to fulfill your mission, to go from this place proclaiming the truth of the gospel, to lead people to Jesus. Lord, I don't know what the people in this congregation are dealing with this morning, but I pray that you would give them peace and faith to take a step today and follow the calling of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.